Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Happening now, as Democrats celebrate, Democrats celebrate important new election wins, Republicans are about to hold another presidential debate without their frontrunner. Both parties studying the results and assessing their 2024 strategies as Donald Trump's GOP rivals are getting ready to take the stage. President Biden is touting his party's new wins as defeats for Trump and MAGA Republicans. Democrats' political hopes rising amid fresh evidence their defense of abortion rights is a winning issue, even as the president's bleak poll numbers are raising some serious red flags. And the state of New York just rested its case in the civil fraud trial against Donald Trump and his family business. This, after Ivanka Trump's testimony and her attempt to downplay her involvement in the Trump organization. Welcome to our viewers here in the United States and around the world. I'm Wolf Blitzer, you're in the Situation Room. Tonight, Donald Trump is deflecting blame for new Republican election losses as he's set to skip another GOP presidential debate tonight. We're tracking the fallout for Republicans and the the bolstered hopes of Democrats right now with the first contest of 2024 just around the corner. CNN's Jeff Zeleny is following it all for us. He's in Miami. That's the site of tonight's GOP debate. Jeff, the candidates are coming into this debate with a political environment very different from just, what, 24 hours ago. Well, it is a very different view and a much more challenging view for the Republican Party. That is why I am told that to a person, the candidates will argue on stage tonight that it is indeed time to have a new face of the Republican Party, a new leader of the future of the party. That argument, of course, though, is complicated not by the rivals on stage, but by the one who is not on stage. That, of course, is former President Donald Trump, who will be holding a competing rally just miles away from here in Hialeah, Florida. He'll, of course, be making his case that he should still be the leader of the party. Of course, he has a commanding lead in this race. That, however, will not change the dynamic on the stage. So for the third debate of the of this primary cycle, Wolf, it is a much different atmosphere, a much different time and tone. The dynamics going into this um, include five candidates on stage. That is much different from the eight on stage of the first debate and the seven at the second debate. That will give all of the candidates more time to make their uh, pitches and their claims and go after their rivals. Nikki Haley comes into this debate riding a wave of momentum. Also an argument which she has been making from the very beginning that she says Republicans as a party must stop losing the popular vote that they have lost in the last seven of the eight presidential elections. So she is casting herself as a new leader for this time. Of course, she is on a collision course with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. There's no question that those two, they've been going after each other for weeks. So we're going to see it up close at center stage. But Wolf, because of the outcome of the elections last night, no doubt, abortion is front and center in this debate tonight. Nikki Haley has been talking about trying to find a consensus on the complicated and very personal issue of abortion. That's put 
is putting her at odds with some of her rivals' views, including Governor DeSantis, who has signed a six-week abortion ban right here in Florida. The other rivals also have different views. So we'll look for that to be front and center, as well as many other issues. But there is no doubt time is running out for these candidates to make their own claim to be the leading alternative to Trump. All the while, he, of course, will just be down the road. Jeff Zeleny on the scene for us. Jeff, thank you very much. There's a lot to discuss with our political experts. uh, And John King, let me start with you. Democrats clearly had a good night last night in Virginia, Ohio and Kentucky. But there is these polls that are coming out that are pretty bad right now for the president of the United States. So what's going on over here? Give us your assessment. It's a great debate within the Democratic Party. The White House would tell you Governor Beshear won. The constitutional amendment passed in Ohio. Democrats picked up seats. Now they control both states, will control both chambers of Virginia legislature. That when Joe Biden is on the ballot, those issues will play out the same way. Joe Biden's just not on the ballot now. That's the White House argument. A lot of Democrats say those candidates won despite Joe Biden and that Joe Biden has some very structural problems for an incumbent. If you look at the polls, he's down with Jimmy Carter. He's down with Donald Trump, uh, two presidents who ended up being one-term presidents. If, if it was a referendum on Joe Biden tomorrow, he would lose. All the data shows that. In the White House, most people privately would say, yeah, that's true. What they hope to do, though, is, number one, they think that the abortion issue is proven winner for them. The question is, is it a winner next year in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in places with Democratic governors where you cannot argue that abortion rights are under threat, if you will, under immediate threat? That's a big question. The president has a problem with his coalition. They need to fix it. The White House says they have time. Uh, You can look to yesterday and say, okay, if you have time, if you focus, maybe you can pull this off. If they think because yesterday they don't have problems, then they have a problem. That's a good point. Kate Benningfield, how do you see uh, this dilemma, this facing the Democrats right now. The Democratic brand seems to be okay. The president of the United States brand, not necessarily all that good. Well, I don't know that it's a dilemma. I think, you know, I think John's point is right. They have time. Uh, And also what's going to happen here is what you're going to see is Joe Biden running against an opponent. Now, presumably it's going to be Donald Trump. There's no there's no indication at this moment, uh, despite what may or may not happen on the debate stage tonight, that it's not going to be Donald Trump. And when he's running against an opponent, he's going to have incredibly sharp contrast to draw. He's going to have really sharp contrast to draw on abortion, We saw in the CNN poll last night, people uh, far and away believe that Joe Biden is more trustworthy and honest. There there will be a real character component there, which I think will be good for Biden over time. Uh, You know, you have to remember, Trump has sort of weirdly been uh, in the background here. I mean, to the extent that he's been front and center for people, it's been in the context of these trials, not in the context of him you know, making his kind of most bombastic and uh, 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 inciting, shall we say, political statements. So I think as Trump comes to the forefront, uh, the Biden campaign has an enormous opportunity to to draw that contrast and to build on the success uh, of last night where we saw these issues are popular and they turn people out to vote for Democrats. Interesting. Kristen Soltis-Anderson, you predicted what happened last night a few days ago. So you had a sense of what was about to happen and you were right. If you turned on the TV here in Washington, D.C., in an expensive media market, you were seeing ad after ad after ad going after state legislative candidates in Virginia around two issues, abortion and what they called MAGA extremism. And so just seeing that alone, in addition to the polling and chit-chat I've had with other sort of strategists, it was not surprising to see this turnout. Frankly, I think the Youngkin team may have gotten a little out over their skis, set expectations too high. The reality is that Republicans in Virginia last night did better than perhaps Donald Trump did back in 2020. It wasn't enough to hang on to the legislature. Um, But right now, you know, the biggest benefit that Donald Trump is getting is the fact that Joe Biden continues to poll so low. It has really undercut Republicans' ability to say, 
oh my gosh, we have a big problem. We need to jettison Trump and turn the page. Right now, there's still too much finger pointing about, well, gosh, what did happen last night? What is going to happen coming next fall for them to really clear the decks and set a new strategy? Daniel Strauss, I want to play a clip for you. This is Republican Senator Steve Daines of Montana. As you know, he chairs the Republican uh, Campaign Committee. Uh, uh, he says 2024 will be very different than what happened last night. Listen to this. The Democrats will have to defend Joe Biden and his policies with the disaster of the southern border, disaster of the economy, disaster geopolitically. Big difference between state races and federal races. These are state issues that, that, that they were battling. It'll be a very different a set of issues in 24 as we look at the United States Senate. What do you make of that argument? I mean, he sure hopes so after last night. But at the same time, yeah, it's true in the sense that a different, larger voting electorate will be activated and Republicans will look to contrast themselves in some way with their opponents while also tying their opponents to this incumbent White House here. But at the same time, it's pretty clear that uh, most of the Republicans who come out of these primaries are very conservative, uh, do sort of fit the bill of a, a MAGA extremist in some way, and that Democrats are very eager to hammer them and ask them again and again, where are you on abortion? Where are you on a 15-week ban? Where are you on something uh, even earlier than that? And, uh, you know, it's still a question that is on every Republican's mind, but at the same time here, these poll numbers for Joe Biden right now, where you're out, are not ideal, and that is what Republicans are betting on in the races going forward. Still a year to go, so there's plenty of time for uh, Biden and the Democrats to get their act together uh, looking ahead. I, I want to play a clip uh, because it's clear now that uh, the Biden campaign is going to try to make abortion rights for women a key issue going forward, given the success that this issue has had for Democrats in several elections since Roe v. Wade. I want to play a clip. This is the vice president earlier today. Listen to this. I think voters have been clear regardless of whether they're in a so-called red or blue state, that one does not have to abandon their faith or deeply held beliefs to agree the government should not be telling a woman what to do with her body. And so it was a good night. And the president and I obviously have a lot of work to do to earn our re-election, but I am confident we're going to win. So is this issue, abortion rights for women, important enough, uh, important enough politically for the uh, president to get his numbers back up. A lot of people thought it would not work again last night after it did work right after Dobbs, right? And it did work again last night. So I think projecting forward, anyone who says it won't work projecting forward, just let's help calm down and take the elections as they come. It has worked for the Democrats in every election so far since Dobbs. Does that carry over to a year from now? I don't know. But it's worked in every one since, so of course they're going to stick with it. They're going to stick with it until proven otherwise. Just that, though, I think the most important thing was that, seeing the Vice President of the United States doing something she never does, walking out to the cameras at the White House. I just came back from Milwaukee. Black voters want to see her. Republicans say she's a liability. Republicans are going to run against her. They're going to do that anyway. The only way to counter that is to get out there and prove you're not a liability. And I'm telling you, that seeing outside the White House is interesting. Uh, black voters, the president has an enthusiasm problem among his black base. They would like to see the vice president out in America. Younger voters, too, there's a problem in these polls no. that, that he has. All right, everybody stand by. We have a lot more to discuss. We're going to uh, dig deeper into the warning signs for President Biden, despite those big wins for Democrats last night and later. What Ivanka Trump said under oath about the fraud allegations against her father and their family's business. The defense now getting ready to present its case. Stand by. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with our political experts breaking down the new election victories for the Democrats, despite President Biden's dismal poll numbers right now. John King, uh, you're the expert. I'll I'll pick up where we left off. Uh, His numbers are not very good, but if you take a closer look, he's really gone down in some important categories. Uh, We're talking about Biden's numbers with independents, black voters, Latino voters, young voters. They're now worse than they were Uh, back in 2020. And they're key pieces of the Democratic coalition, which is more complicated than the Republican coalition. It has more pieces to it, if you will. But if you think about, just go out into Loudoun County, Virginia, right? You know, in 1990, it was 80-something percent white. Now it's 53 percent white. So, you know, so President Biden won it hugely last time. But it's a lot lot of Asian voters now, right? And and Asian of every persuasion. Uh, Some of them are open to Trump or Republican messages on small business, on lower taxes, and the crime issue is playing in the suburbs. So the the, the Latino vote has been drifting. Black men have been drifting away. So the, the complication for the president is he doesn't have one problem to fix. It's many different issues within his coalition. Now, again, he has a year to do it, and he doesn't have an opponent right now. But there, it's the depth of it from traveling as you go to places. This is my 10th presidential election. Um, I remember George H.W. Bush, an incumbent president, was 90 percent after the first Gulf War. We had what was a pretty mild recession. The American people just didn't believe he was the guy they wanted to fix the economy. If people reach that threshold opinion, we want something new, it's hard to get them to change their mind. Uh, and I think right now the country's thinking maybe we should have somebody new. And the president better get at that, changing that psychology. Forget the specifics. Just sh- change the psychology that we want something new. You think, Kate, uh, Biden can win re-election uh, with this drop in, in voters among young young voters, minorities. He needs them for that Democratic coalition. Oh, no question. But I would also say, let's look at how people voted yesterday. I mean, people literally went to the polls yesterday and voted overwhelmingly for Democratic candidates who were uh, touting Biden positions. So uh, again, you know, I I don't dispute that there are elements of that poll that are concerning. And certainly if they track with uh, the average of, of polls, then, you know, as a campaign, the Biden campaign has to take that seriously. I know that they do. Um, But to look at one poll a year out and compare it to voters who actually went to the polls 24 hours ago and overwhelmingly embraced the Democratic agenda, uh, you know, I I don't think that the president, um, uh, I I think the president has a very clear pathway here. Uh, He's got to do the work, but it is clear that those uh, those issues uh, motivate voters. And again, I would go back to 
we have not even begun the true head-to-head contest between the president and presumably Donald Trump, who also in that poll is has uh, enormous vulnerability and has enormously high unfavorable ratings. So uh, there's plenty of room uh, for Biden to define himself here. But uh, again, I would say, you know, let's look at what happened yesterday when, in fact, voters embraced uh, this very agenda. What do you make of this, Kristen? So I think that the problem is less that there are going to be a ton of young voters voting for Donald Trump and more that there will be a lot of young voters who either say, I cannot believe these are the choices in front of me and stay home or they choose to vote for a third party candidate. Um, I'm normally pretty skeptical of the impact of third party candidates because we're so polarized. People ultimately will fall into one camp or the other. But there have been poll after poll showing whether it's Robert F. Kennedy Jr. or a variety, a whole constellation of third party options that wind up garnering about one in four voters, and especially among young voters, that's particularly high. So this dissatisfaction, I don't think we're likely to see the Trump generation as Generation Z, but I do think that younger voters are frustrated with the options they have available to them. And if they simply sit out the election, that is devastating for Democrats. And Daniel, how concerned should the Biden White House and the Biden campaign be about these drop, the drop in support for Biden uh, among these groups? I mean, it's not ideal, especially because they have gotten this phrase Bidenomics going in the same way that the Obama administration got Obamacare going in everybody's mouths. But at the same time, look, elections are about contrasts, and this White House does not have a clear contrast to wage. And the other thing is, Biden has been counted out before. This is not his first presidential campaign. And look, I saw Kate and her team uh, after they won South Carolina, and they were buoyant. And there were more than a few of Kate's deputies and Fact aides check, true. telling me, I told you so, why'd you doubt us? I mean, they knew, but let's, like, we've got a whole year to go, and this is a, a team that is used to being under the radar until they have to be. And, and the incumbent president usually, usually has a lot of advantages yep. going into a re-election campaign. We shall see. All right, guys, thank you very, very much. And be sure to watch CNN's post-debate analysis later tonight with Anderson Cooper and Dana Bash. That starts at 10 p.m. Eastern. And coming up here in the Situation Room, Ivanka Trump testifies in New York's civil fraud trial against her father. What she revealed on the stand under oath and what comes next after the state rested its case. We'll be right back. In Manhattan today, Ivanka Trump took the stand for hours, testifying in New York's civil fraud trial against her father and adult brothers and their family business. The state resting its case shortly after her testimony. CNN's Kara Scanell is just outside the courthouse in New York with all the late-breaking details. So what were the biggest takeaways from Ivanka Trump's testimony? Well, Wolf, Ivanka Trump was on the stand all day here today, and she was questioned about her involvement in two specific loans that the Trump Organization was involved in, a loan for the Doral Golf Course in Florida and the old post office building in Washington, D.C. Ivanka Trump testified that she had set up a relationship with Deutsche Bank through one of these bankers and that she was involved in these loans that she said a high level. But when it came down to the nitty gritty details of it, she said she didn't recall much of that, including a lot of details about what was required under the personal 
financial guarantee that her father had agreed to in order to get these loans. But they focused on the old post office building and, and pulled up an email that indicated that the GSA, which was involved in this deal, that they had identified that Trump's financial statements did not comply with all accounting rules, and there were exceptions to that. She was asked if that came up during an in-person meeting that she attended in Washington with her father, meeting with the GSA. She said she didn't recall the financial statements coming up in that meeting, distancing herself from it. And, and a key allegation in this case is that you know, loans were decided based on these allegedly fraudulent financial statements. She said she didn't remember that coming up and that the discussions then were about her vision for the project. Now, she was also asked about a penthouse apartment she has here in New York on Park Avenue. And she has an option to buy that apartment for $8.5 million on Trump's financial statements for that same year. It was listed at two and a half times that amount, more than $20 million. Ivanka Trump was asked about that. She said she didn't know what went into the financial statements. She didn't prepare them. She didn't review them. She didn't approve them. So again, distancing herself from like her brothers, Don Jr. and Eric Trump did when they testified last week. After court today, the New York Attorney General Letitia James spoke about the testimony. Here's what she said. At the end of the day, this case is about fraudulent statements of financial condition that she benefited from. She was enriched. And clearly, you cannot distance yourself from that fact. Um, the documents do not lie. The numbers do not lie. Now, the New York Attorney General's office rested their case today in the sixth week of this trial. Trump's team will begin their defense on Monday. Well, Kara Scannell in New York for us. Thank you. I want to bring in our legal and political experts for some serious analysis right now. Uh, and let me start, Norm, with you. Did Ivanka Trump's testimony help or hurt her dad? Her testimony hurt her father. She threw him under the bus. She did not defend these financial statements. She said she didn't prepare them. She didn't review them. And she didn't approve them. So if he was looking to her for help, he didn't get it. Um, there were a lot of I don't knows and I don't remembers to protect herself. And then finally, Wolf, there was one Perry Mason moment because this proceeding has been about dishonesty and New York confronted Ivanka with a personal guarantee. Her father was supposed to make a personal guarantee. They confronted her with evidence that the father turned around and demanded that his kids uh, uh, guarantee him for the guarantee. So it was neither personal nor a guarantee. It was like when he said, intent doesn't mean we will do it. It was a Perry Mason moment. Interesting. Uh, some of our younger viewers might not know a Perry Mason <laughs> moment, but that's another matter. How significant, Jamie, was it to see Ivanka on, uh, take the stand and, and, and testify? Look, I think it's always significant when you know, one of the Trump children take the stand. Certainly, she did not want to be here today. We know that she did everything she could. But to Norm's point about whether, you know, this was legally significant as he laid out, I would also say it was personally significant because in Trump world, what's the most important thing? Loyalty. And as we saw with her testimony with the January 6th hearing, she acknowledged in that testimony that she believed her father had indeed lost the election. He then, he's always, you know, she's supposed to be the favorite child. He normally would not say anything, but he came out and said she was checked out in the final days of his administration. Bottom line, he's not going to be happy with this testimony today.
What do you expect to see starting Monday when the defense uh, starts calling witnesses? Sure. I think what the defense will uh, try to argue is a few different things. Number one, look, it was a bunch of accountants that were uh, directing things. at at the Trump organization and not the executives at the Trump organization. I think that's one. Number two, there's there's a lot of subjectivity when you're talking about how you value buildings. And I think they're going to try to muddy the water a little bit about, um, you know, uh, about the values of these properties. And I also think, and Ivanka Trump touched on this point a little bit today, but in a far more subtle way than her father and her brothers, this idea of a victimless crime. Donald Trump talked about it a little bit, suggesting that, well, no one was really harmed by their um, misrepresenting and misvaluing the properties. She said, and Ivanka Trump made a note today, that um, banks were eager to keep doing business with the Trump organization. Therefore, they couldn't have been harmed that much. And that may be true. Banks may have been eager to do business with the Trump organization, but you still might have violated New York law. Those two things can be true at the same time. And I think that's sort of the argument, that arguments that they're going to make. See how that unfolds. There's another major development that we're watching today, and I want your thoughts. The House Oversight Committee has now subpoenaed Hunter Biden and James Biden, the president's son, the president's brother, in their impeachment inquiry against the president of the United States. So what do you make of this? It was not a surprise. You know, Annie Greer, who's on our Hill team, has been covering this story all along. So the fact that this would happen, we knew it was coming. But you have to wonder about the timing. The day after Election Day, which did not go well for Republicans, and it's also the same day that Ivanka Trump Uh, the child of a former president was testifying. So it's certainly a day Republicans would like to change the subject. Is there any evidence, Norm, uh, that uh, the president of the United States committed an impeachable uh, crime? Wolf, as you know, uh, I spent a year uh, working on the first impeachment. And the evidence here is uh, does not rise anywhere near the standard of treason or high crimes or misdemeanors. Lately, House Republicans have been focused on two loans from Biden's brother, James Biden, uh, to the president. First, they said it was uh, they found the checks. It's evidence of bribery by China. But then it turns out it's a loan. Then they say there's no documentation of the loans. But then the documentation materialized. It is an evidence-free impeachment. It's debasing congressional oversight and this very important constitutional tool And um, I think it's going to come back to haunt them. Those subpoenas may not be enforceable in court because they don't have a formal impeachment vote, no impeachment inquiry on the floor. And there's no basis for what they're doing. I think it's an embarrassment. All right. You'll tell us how you really feel the next time. (laughs) Everyone, thank you very, very much. Just ahead, the latest on the Israeli offensive in Gaza amid growing international criticism of the war and the toll it's taking on civilians. We'll go to Tel Aviv for a live report. Stand by. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. All right, there's some breaking news we're following right now. The Pentagon now says U.S. forces have carried out an airstrike against a weapons facility in Syria linked to uh, 
to various groups backed by Iran. Seeing as Jeremy Diamond is joining us from Tel Aviv, Israel right now. He's got the latest. What are you learning, Jeremy? Yeah, that's right, Wolf. Two uh, U.S. F-15s striking a weapons uh, storage facility in eastern Syria. Uh, this was just conform- confirmed by uh, the U.S. Department of Defense. This happened in response to attacks carried out by Iranian proxies in the region against U.S. personnel in Iraq and Syria. We have watched over uh, the last several weeks as Iranian proxies have ramped up their attacks on U.S. Uh, personnel and bases in Iraq and Syria. Since October 17th, 40 times uh, those bases have been attacked by those Iranian proxies, leaving multiple U.S. service members with traumatic brain injuries uh, and other injuries that the military characterized as minor. Uh, But this is just an ongoing saga in the potential for greater escalation here as Iran has employed its proxies to attack not only Israel, but also U.S. interests in the region. Earlier today, in fact, uh, the Houthi rebels in Yemen, who are also allied with Iran, took down an unmanned U.S. uh, aerial drone, uh, which is uh, another significant move uh, in this story as we watch to see uh, whether or not this conflict between Israel and Hamas could potentially escalate into a broader regional war, which the U.S. is very much trying to avoid. Yes, certainly is, but it's a very serious development indeed. We're also getting, and I know you're doing a lot of reporting on this, a new look uh, inside Israel's ground offensive that's ongoing in Gaza. What are you learning? That's right, Wolf. We went into Gaza on Saturday with the Israel Defense Forces, and today uh, several other journalists, including Reuters, getting an opportunity to go inside. These are very tightly controlled visits, uh, very limited window, and military sensors do review footage. Uh, But we are getting a picture, in this case, of northern Gaza and some of Israel's military operations. This is all happening as Israeli forces are moving now into the heart of Gaza City, according to Israel's Minister of Defense. For several days now, we've been hearing that they've been encircling Gaza City, and now they are saying that they are firmly operating within that city, a Hamas stronghold. Of course, it's very difficult for us to independently verify those accounts by the Israeli military. But all of this is happening as uh, senior Israeli officials uh, are making very clear, Wolf, that the tunnel system that remains uh, below Gaza remains a tremendous challenge for Israeli forces. And tonight, the Israel Defense Forces confirming that they have uh, taken out 130 tunnel systems uh, since uh, this war began. But of course, they acknowledge that many, many more still remains. Meanwhile, the humanitarian situation in Gaza Wolf remains dire. We are watching as hospitals are running out of medical supplies, running out of fuels to carry out their operations. And the U.N. Secretary General is warning that the way Israel is carrying out its military operations, saying that there is clearly something wrong there. Wolf. Jeremy Diamond reporting from Tel Aviv, Israel. Thank you very much. I want to get some more now in the crisis in Gaza as countless Palestinians flee the Israeli bombardment in the northern strip for an uncertain future in the south. CNN Salma Abdelaziz has a closer look at their harrowing journey. Taking only what they can carry, families are fleeing Gaza City. They wave white flags made of anything they can find. And as the sounds of war echo around them, they signal yet again that they are innocents. Now we're supposed to be in the safe area, but you can hear the bombs behind us, he says. All of our houses are gone. Nothing is left. The Israeli military has been calling for weeks on all those living in the northern part of the Strip to move southwards, most recently opening what it called safe corridors for limited windows of time. 
pushing thousands here to Salah Dean Street, where evacuees describe a harrowing journey. We saw along the road destruction, dead bodies everywhere, and the Israeli tanks would demand to search the youth, she says. We saw one young man stripped naked. We witnessed unbearable scenes. The only way to reach the route is by foot or by cart for those who can find room. There was heavy shelling on our neighborhood and we were forced to flee. We have to use these donkey carts because there's no fuel, he says. They cut everything off to force us out of our homes. Israeli troops are now in the heart of Gaza City. As Israel's defense minister apparently declared the entire city, the whole of the enclave's largest population center, a legitimate target. Gaza is the biggest terror stronghold that mankind has ever built. This whole city is one big terror base. Underground, they have kilometers of tunnels connecting to hospitals and schools. The UN calls this exodus forcible displacement and accuses Israel of the collective punishment of some two million people. And these routes can be dangerous and deadly. This was Salah Dean Street just a few weeks ago. CNN geolocated and authenticated these videos showing the aftermath of explosions that killed evacuees. You can see luggage among the bodies. And many fear they will never be allowed to return home. Some here say this is reminiscent of the Nakba, the Arabic term for the expulsion of Palestinians from their towns during the founding of Israel. We walked a very long way. It felt like the Nakba of 2023, she says. We walked by dead people who were ripped to shreds. Children were very tired because there was no water. People were dying and there were elderly who couldn't walk. And for those who do make it, bombardment and siege await them in the south too. There is no true escape. And thanks to CNN Salma Abdelaziz for that report. Coming up, five GOP presidential candidates will face off on a Miami debate stage tonight. I'll talk politics with the Republican governor from the key early primary state of New Hampshire. Five Republican presidential candidates will be taking the debate stage in Miami later tonight, where one of the topics will certainly be the GOP's losses in yesterday's elections. Let's discuss this and more uh, with the, the New Hampshire governor, Chris Sununu. Uh, governor, thanks so much for joining us. As you know, Trump won't be debating tonight, but he's still dominating the race in our latest CNN poll. He's at 61 percent. Is there anything or really anything realistic that any of these other candidates can say or do tonight to change the course of this Republican primary, or is it for all practical purposes already a done deal? Definitely not a done deal. There's no doubt. These guys are trying to figure out who is going to lead that pack to go one-on-one -on -one with Trump prior to Super Tuesday. Iowa will be a big part of that. New Hampshire, even South Carolina will be a big part of that. And these debates are a very big part of it. You know, you have someone like Nikki Haley, whose numbers really moved after the debate. A lot of folks thought DeSantis wasn't going to do well. He actually did very well in the first two debates. Um, we had eight candidates uh, about a month and a half ago. We're down to five candidates now, so the field is winnowing. So as we get closer to that alternative to Trump within the GOP, which again would garner 40, 50 or, or more percent of the vote, then it becomes a real race. If Trump runs the table on Super Tuesday, you know, later in by, by March of 24, that's probably it. But this is a chance for them not to, to say, I'm 
you know, I'm going to beat Donald Trump per se, but I'm the best to take him on and show an alternative and a, a more optimistic future profile of the Republican Party. As you know, Republicans saw some very telling losses in last night's elections. Was this a failure for your party? And how should the GOP presidential candidates take that into account tonight? Well, I I'm not going to call it a failure for the party. Tate Reeves won. Cameron, um, you know, Daniel Cameron was down in the polls. He surged at the end and couldn't quite get over the line. But the biggest takeaway, I think, is that abortion issue. Right. If you're talking, abortion has become this national albatross, electoral albatross, if you will, for the Republican Party. We don't seem to discuss it the right way. Anyone talking about a national abortion ban should learn what happened in Ohio, even the messaging that didn't work in Virginia, and stop. Don't do it. No one cares about six weeks, 15 weeks, 24. Just stop. If you're talking about a national abortion ban, you are losing. It's a losing issue. Some candidates talk about it the right way. It's a state's issue. States are going to figure it out. Voters will have more accountability, and that's where it is. But on, on that one, I think that's the biggest takeaway in terms of what hopefully what not to do. We, it didn't help us in 22. We lost big. It didn't help us last night. I know you've spent a lot of time campaigning with Nikki Haley and Governor DeSantis, who are expected to feud tonight, as you know, as they try to present themselves as the best alternative to Trump. What do you, who do you think will make the best case? Well, I think they're both making a very good cases in their own lane. They, they, you shouldn't try to be something you're not. And I think they're, they're realizing their strengths on the trail. I've, I've been at the town halls, in the living rooms, in the diners with both of them. Um, they both have compelling cases to make. They both come from somewhat different backgrounds. But the best similarity is they're both governors. They both have executive level, level leadership. They both have accountability. They both have a record of success. And that's, I think, what's translating a lot with folks. Um, at the end of the day, it's not just about, you know, who's just the best alternative to Trump, but who can make sure we can win in November of 24. Trump, the, all the latest polls show Trump cannot win in November of 24. Biden is likely not going to be on the ticket. I think the Democrats are going to be much smarter in, in either the Bidens or the party or however it's going to work out. The Democrats are going to find somebody else. And that latest times... Uh, Sienna poll showed that Trump is the one that loses to the alternative. So winning is really the issue of the day. But they have to kind of find their own paces on the ground. They're both doing very well in both Iowa and New Hampshire. And that's why they've kind of surged as the top two contenders here. As you know, Iowa's uh, Republican governor just endorsed DeSantis. Uh, you're still uh, deciding who you're going to support. Tell us about that. Well, look, timing is everything, of course. I'm, I'm not sure who I'm going to get behind. I've always said I'm not, I'm not good at being coy. As soon as I know, everyone else will know. And an endorsement is, is as good as the endorser wants to put the effort behind it, right? You've got to do the media and hit the trail and make the introductions, knowing that most voters in Iowa and New Hampshire, most voters in the GOP primary still haven't decided. Right. The polls are where they are today, but those can move drastically, especially after Thanksgiving. So that's really where you're going to see the most movement between maybe December 7th and January 7th. We will be watching. Governor Sununu, thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Coming up, an emotional farewell at the National Zoo here in Washington today as its giant pandas be began their long journey to China. We're going to have a live report on their departure after decades of what's called panda diplomacy. It's the end of an era here in Washington. The National Zoo's giant pandas are now on their way back to China. Brian Todd is joining us live from the Smithsonian's National Zoo. So what's the latest, Brian? Wolf, at this hour, the three giant pandas from the National Zoo are in the middle of their long flight to China. A bittersweet day for zoo-goers, zookeepers, and apparently for the pandas themselves. 
As if to say goodbye, a giant panda peers through the window of its crate, looking about as sad as we are to see them go. Two adult pandas, Mei Shang and Tian Tian, and their three-year-old cub, Xiao Qiji, are headed to China, leaving the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. without any pandas. The question I have been asked most in the past few weeks is, are you sad? Um, and the answer is a very, it's a very simple yes. It was such a sad scene at the National Zoo today that the zookeepers had the look of pallbearers as they walked alongside the pandas' crates. One zookeeper kept her hand by a small window in the crate, seemingly to reassure the adult female panda, Mei Shang. The loss felt by zoogoers as well. We have a little one now, and so we were hoping to let him see the pandas. He won't remember it, but we would, and so we were really looking forward to today. With the liftoff of a FedEx cargo jet and a 19-hour flight to China, an odyssey ends. After 51 years of pandas being at the Washington National Zoo, with the exception of one year in the late 90s. It was in 1972 that First Lady Pat Nixon, during her husband's groundbreaking visit to China, commented to Chinese Premier Zhao Enlai that she loved pandas. He replied, quote, I'll give you some. Later that year, the U.S. exchanged two Alaskan musk oxen for two pandas, Ling Ling and Sing Sing. Crowds at the National Zoo have doted on the pandas ever since. We have, give or take, over two million visitors to the zoo alone each year. And we know the vast majority of them come and visit the giant pandas. With the glass wall and stuff, you could see them really up close and personal. You could see the pandas interacting with each other. It, it was just a really great exhibit. That first set of pandas at the National Zoo, Ling Ling and Sing Sing, were huge attractions. But getting them to produce more pandas only led to heartbreak. They eventually produced five cubs, but none of them lived more than a few days. Still, the exchange program that has placed pandas in zoos around the U.S. has been a resounding success, and the species has been removed from the endangered list. They have been downgraded on the conservation list to vulnerable. That's a conservation victory. A key question tonight, has panda diplomacy taken a hit from actual diplomacy? There has been speculation that China has been taking back the pandas because of all the diplomatic tension between the U.S. and China in recent years. But zoo officials say that's not the case. It's not tied to anything political. It's in our best interest to send these senior bears back to China and to hopefully bring in a younger, viable, reproductive breeding pair. And those are the big questions tonight. Will pandas return to the National Zoo, and if so, when? Zoo officials say they'll be in talks with their Chinese counterparts starting next year about getting more pandas back here. We're told it'll be at least a year before we do see them here. In the meantime, Wolf, Zoo Atlanta is the only facility in the U.S. that has giant pandas, but it, too, could soon lose them. Wolf? Brian Todd reporting. Thanks, Brian, very much. Aaron Burnett, our front starts right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 